This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, we're going to start off with a question today. And this is the question. How do we know that murder is wrong? Now, some of you guys immediately, you came up with an answer. You already had it ready to go. If you were sitting across from me at a table, you would have just given me your answer. For others of you, maybe you didn't have an answer right out of the gate. Maybe it's not something that you just knew right off the top of your head. Maybe some of you got a little bit philosophical with the question. You wanted to break down how I asked it, and then you would give me a appropriate answer thereafter. But what if I told you you have to answer that question, and the caveat being that you can't use any religious writings or texts in your answer? How would you answer? And that's what we're going to be getting into today. Because that's really hard to do. What I just did to you is I gave you an answer, but then I gave you one caveat that makes answering that question incredibly, incredibly difficult. So today we're going to be talking about moral relativism. Okay. So this is a subject matter and this is a podcast that is going to be a little bit philosophical for some of you guys, but any of you guys that are tempted to maybe get out of this podcast, I guarantee you, you're going to get some value out of this, even though this isn't your normal cup of tea. Because to be honest with you guys, even as I was researched doing this podcast, Moral relativism is not an easy subject to wrap your mind around. There's a lot of different things that you can go into. There's a lot of different study. There's a lot of reading that you can do. And I'm just going to go ahead and give you a little bit of a spoiler alert right now. I'm probably not going to do the world's greatest job of giving you all the information that you could possibly need and all the different intricacies. But as I always do, I'm trying to break this down in a way that's going to be interesting to you guys, but also in a way that you can use. Because at the end of the day, if you can't use this information, if you can't take some of the stuff from this podcast, share it around, discuss it with others, then what exactly are you accomplishing? It's going to be a little bit difficult for you to give me an answer as to what you're going to be able to accomplish. So that's what we're going to get into today. But before we go too far into the podcast, we've got to start with definitions because you know how it goes. Anytime you start looking at different things, you have to look at the definition of something or you're going to struggle to get into any of the nuance of it. So four definitions we're going to look at here at the very beginning, the very first thing we need to define is morality. Okay. And, uh, but just one little caveat before I give you the definition of morality, all these definitions I found in different places. And some of these definitions I had to alter for our purposes here today, but I didn't alter them in a way that would change the definition. Okay. So let's go back to morality. So morality, they are principles, or I guess it's a noun. It's principles concerning the distinction between right and wrong or good and bad behavior. Okay. So that's morality. Then we talk about relativism. So relativism is a noun as well. And it's the doctrine that knowledge, truth, and morality exist in relation to culture, society, or historical context and are not absolute. Okay. So obviously if you take elements of morality, the definition of morality and elements of the definition of relativism, you get moral relativism. And this is the definition that we will be using for our purposes. This is morality is not absolute, but only relative to individual feelings the society or circumstances. So there's a lot of different definitions of moral relativism out there, but that's the one that we're going to use. Again, morality is not absolute, but only relative to individual feelings, the society or circumstances. But that's not the last definition that we have to look at because with moral relativism, that's one side of an equation, but the other side of the equation is just as important and something that we will be discussing quite a bit today. And that is objective morality. So here is our definition of objective morality. And that is moral standards and truths exist independent of individual feelings, societal standards, or circumstances. 
So I'll give you those last two again, just so they're fresh. Moral relativism, that's morality is not absolute, but only relative to individual feelings, the society or circumstances. And objective morality, which is moral standards and truths exist independent of individual feelings, societal standards or circumstances. So automatically right out of the gate, you got to understand and, and know just from hearing those definitions, there is a battle between objective morality and moral relativism. There just has to be. They are two sides of the same coin. But the thing that's interesting for us and the thing that's going to really pay dividends for us as we continue on in this conversation is what the basis of both of those things are. Okay. So the basis of objective morality is some type of theism. And, and I meant to say some type of theism that, I mean, because that's not just necessarily the Judeo Christian God. It could be some, any number of gods, but a theistic worldview is what undergirds objective morality. And obviously, since they're on opposite sides of the same coin, moral relativism, the thing that undergirds that is atheism, a belief that there is not a God or gods. And some people would actually disagree with that, but I, I just got to be honest with you. That is the most cogent way to put it. Theism and objective morality are in tandem. So is atheism and moral relativism. But now let's get into a little bit more detail on one of these. So let's go ahead and dig into objective morality. So again, this is attached to theism. And just to give you the definition just one more time, just so we can continue to hear it and repeat it in our heads, objective morality, those are moral standards and truths exist independent of individual feelings, societal standards, or circumstances. So this is a pretty easy way of getting into it, but I'm not going to be destri- describing it in its totality because I could go a lot of different directions on objective morality and literally, I could suggest to you a dozen books that could get you into the different nuances of objective morality. But I actually saw here recently a video clip of Ben Shapiro. Obviously, you guys know who Ben Shapiro is. We've got some more interesting and exciting things coming up from Ben Shapiro here pretty soon on this podcast that we can talk more about later. But he was asked in a QA and a because he normally goes to colleges and he engages in Q&A with students and things like that. He was basically asked, you know, how we can come to the, the person asked him, I'm trying to remember exactly how the kid worded it, but essentially he was in a conversation with somebody and they were trying to ask this person how he could find some objective morality without God being there. And so Ben Shapiro understood the question, but then he kind of sidestepped it in a way, in a good way to kind of give you an idea of, okay, how did we get to this point where we feel like we have objective, uh, objective morality and how we have that and where did it come from? So Ben Shapiro gave a, a very, very cogent answer. And he said, basically we have two sources of where we get objective morality. The first is the secular and Greek way. And the second is the Judeo-Christian way. Okay, so let's go back to the first one, the secular Greek way. Basically, he's talking about teleology. So that's going to be a new word for a lot of you guys. I know it was new for me whenever I started digging into this. But teleology, T-E-L-E-O-L-O-G-Y. This is essentially, I'm going to give you the definition of it here. This is the explanation of phenomena in terms of the purpose they serve rather than the cause by which they arise. But what he's making here, uh, what Ben Shapiro is making, he's essentially representing the teleological argument. And that is the argument for the existence of God from the evidence of order and hence design in nature. So basically we're given this in the secular Greek view, we're given this argument for God's existence and, and basically for objective morality and objective reality. And it's given by an unmoved mover. Okay, so it was given to us by an unmoved mover, a godly being, right? So basically, the universe is the way that it is. Nature is the way that it is. 
And so for us as humans, the highest of the created order or evolved order, we get our hints for how we are to comport ourselves uh, properly. We get that directly from the universe and nature and the laws that are inside of that continuum, I guess would be the easiest way to say it. So without getting too much into more detail there, that's essentially the secular Greek way. But then the second way that we get our ideas of objective morality is the Judeo-Christian way. And this is essentially in, in the difference between the teleological argument. This is the revelation argument that we as humanity, we got this, these ideas via revelation. Okay. So the Judeo side of the Judeo-Christian, that's essentially the Jewish uh, background, which is that God descended onto a mountaintop and gave us the laws by which we are to live by. Okay, so that's the Judeo side. And then he talked about how the Christian side is how Jesus came to humanity and he modeled the laws by which to live by. Right. So he modeled it to us. This is how you are supposed to live. So I think that Ben Shapiro did a very good job of giving us an idea of what is the foundation of objective morality, which, again, is based in theism. But now we get into the other side, which is the main subject matter for today's episode, which is moral relativism, which again is attached to atheism. And I'll give you the definition one more time of moral relativism here. Morality is not absolute, but only relative to the individual feelings, the society or circumstances. Okay. So the thing is, is this worldview, you don't really need to dig into exactly how we got to this worldview as much, and it's not going to be nearly as important to you for us to do that. So We need to go ahead and from the very jump, we need to dig into the philosophical issues with this worldview that everything within morality is relative. So there's three things that I kind of came up with that I thought were philosophical issues that we should cover. The first is you'll hear them say something like this, that there is no objective morality, but we intuitively somehow know that things like murder, rape, pedophilia, theft, incest, etc. are wrong. Okay. So, so someone's going to say, yeah, there's no objective morality. This is just something that we know. Somehow we just know that those things that I listed in and other things that I'm sure you thought of are wrong. But the dilemma that we find is how, how do we know that those things are wrong? How did we arrive at that? Right. Especially if you think that we're just, you know, hairless apes that just bump around into other apes and, you know, converse with them using language and whatnot. How did we get to the point where we figured out that those things were not good? So that's a big philosophical issue with the worldview. The second philosophical issue, and this was pointed out by Dennis Prager in a video by PragerU, is that the terms good and evil become like and don't like. So you can't say that something is good. You have to say that that's something that I like. You know, you can't say that something is evil. You have to say that that's something that I don't like. And so I thought a really, really good way of describing this is I was listening to Ravi Zacharias do a Q&A episode uh, on his podcast, actually. And there was a guy that he was engaging with. And this guy was a, you know, he was a moral relativist, right? So evolutionary biologist, like everything just happened by chance and it is what it is. And so to try and get this guy to think through his worldview completely, he gave him this scenario. And Ravi's on stage and he says, hey, what if I brought a newborn baby up on stage and I took a hammer and I drove it into that baby's skull, killing it? Would it be evil what I've done? Would it be wrong? And the guy apparently thought about it for a second and then he responded and said, you know, I wouldn't like it very much, but no, I couldn't say that it was wrong. Again, think about that. So you want to talk about philosophical issues? Man. I mean, that, that, there's people like that walking around, right? That's something that we have to be concerned about. 
And so the third thing in terms of philosophical issues with this worldview is that strict moral relativists. So these are like the true believers, right? The strict moral relativists cannot denounce any behavior or act as evil, wrong, or incorrect. They, they just can't do it, right? And you saw the example right here with the, the guy that Rabbi Zacharias was, was interacting with. But the thing about it is, is, is we know, we just know in our hearts that somehow certain things are just abjectly wrong to do right? But moral relativists don't even believe their own theory, right? Because if, if you challenged a moral relativist, because let's take Rabbi Zacharias's example one step further. Let's say it wasn't just some random six, you know, newborn baby that he brought up on stage that he was going to bludgeon with a hammer. Let's say it was that guy's newborn baby or his newborn grandbaby or something, right? Don't you think that at that point he would have a little bit more of an opinion on it? But again, if you're a strict moral relativist, a true believer, then you, you can't really have it both ways. But the thing that we have to talk about here, guys, is what the logical outcome of an atheistic, moral, relativistic worldview is. And the thing about it is, is, is we've already experienced it as humankind, and we've already seen it. And we've got pictures, and we've got video. And that is the bloodshed that we saw in the 20th century. So let me tease this out for you a little bit here. So Friedrich Nietzsche, so uh, in the late 1800s, he was, you know, a philosopher. He did a lot of writing and he's had a lot of impact on people even to this day. But he very famously said in 1882 that God is dead. Okay. So one thing to be really clear on this, he was using that phrase figuratively, right? He was basically saying that the enlightenment had quote unquote killed the idea of God or gods, right? But in doing so, in making this prediction, there was, there was, or in making this declaration, rather, he also made a prediction and Nietzsche predicted that the 20th century, again, because he, he died in the late 19th century, he predicted that the 20th century would be the bloodiest in human history. And it is absolutely stunning to see exactly how right that he was. So let's just do a quick rundown. And guys, again, as, as most historians would tell you, a lot of these numbers are so unbelievably hard to calculate. So I'm just going to give some generic stats on some of these things. But in the 20th century, we have Chairman Mao killing around 70 million people. Joseph Stalin killed around 20 million people. Hitler killed around 6 million Jews, just Jews. Then we have Mussolini killing just under 1 million people. And then we have to look at World War I and World War II. World War I killed anywhere in the range between 15 and 19 million people. And in World War II, we saw 70 to 85 million people killed worldwide. Just think about that for a second. And I mean, really, really think about that. And here's another thing that's interesting and in there's no one that I think that has been able to absolutely prove this, but this is a, a somewhat verified rumor that Adolf Hitler actually delivered copies of the writings of Nietzsche to Stalin and Mussolini, two of the biggest murderers in the history of the earth. They took this idea, these ideas from Nietzsche, that we live in a godless world, that nobody is watching us. And that's the thing that all of these men that I just mentioned and all the regimes therein have in common, is all of them were operating from an atheistic worldview, Okay something that is a huge part of moral relativism. So this is something that should be very, very concerning to us. And for any of you guys out there that listen to or read Jordan Peterson, this is why he's so vehement about controlling uh, people that are trying to control speech. 
or anything that is going to come out of these socialist or um, communistic regimes because we've seen this before, right? That's the thing that's so concerning to me about young people, Gen Z and millennials that think that these socialistic ideas would be a great, great thing. And this is not a podcast about socialism today. Perhaps we'll do that on a future episode. But that's one thing that we've really got to contend with, guys, is this is what people believe. And this is what happens when people believe in that way. Because it'd be hard, you'd be hard pressed to, to believe that, you know, Mao or Stalin or Hitler or Mussolini or any of those guys that were uh, doing those things, that if they thought that there was a God that was going to be judging them someday for the things that they did, you can pretty much assume that if they had all their mental faculties there, that that would not have been something that they would have done. The, the ways that they operated and the things that they did would probably not have been, been so bad or maybe not even happened at all. But to change gears here just a little bit, I want to kind of put this question to you is, you know, why should thinking Christians, right? So capital letter thinking Christians be concerned about moral relativism. And for any of you guys that have been listening to the podcast for any particular length of time, if you go back to episode 49 of this podcast, I talked about the state of theology survey. Okay. And so for those of you who don't know exactly what that is or haven't listened to that episode yet, I would certainly encourage you to do so. Um, this was something that Ligonier Ministries did. That is RC, the late R.C. Sproul's ministry. Um, and it's done every two years. And in 2018, I think it was done in April or May of 2018. It's just something, it's a, it's a survey that is done to kind of get a theological temperature for what's going on in America with Americans, right? So this was conducted in 2018 and there were just over 3000 respondents and they were, the respondents were broken down into two categories. Okay. So the first were just Americans, right? So that's pretty much everybody. So all 3002 is actually 3002 respondents. They were all Americans. But then there was a second second category, and those were evangelicals, right? So 581, about one-sixth of the respondents, were people that considered themselves to be evangelicals, okay? So in order for us to know, just so we're all on the same page, there were four statements that these people had to affirm in order for them to be considered evangelicals inside of that category. So here were the four statements. Number one, the Bible is the highest authority for what I believe. Number two, it is very important for me personally to encourage non-Christians to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. Three, Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the only sacrifice that could remove the penalty of my sin. And four, only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior receive God's free gift of eternal salvation. So in the survey, there were a bunch of different statements. And so basically you ranked what you felt about that statement on the scale from strongly disagree, disagree, neutral, agree, strongly agree. Okay. But for our purposes here today, talking about moral relativism, we're only going to talk about one of the statements, and it was statement number 30, and it was this. Religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It is not about objective truth. So when we look at all the participants, so all 3,000 or so of them, 61% of those people agreed, with 31% of them strongly agreeing. Only 29% people of, of Americans objected and disagreed with that statement. Again, the statement was this religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It is not about objective truth, but this is a part that should really be scary for everybody listening to this podcast. Cause I'm assuming most of you are Christians. And if you're not a Christian, we are ecstatic that you're here, but this next commentary is just for the Christians. When you go down to what the evangelical participants said, okay. So the, the almost 600 of evangelicals that were participating in this, of the respondents agreed with the statement that religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It is not about objective truth. 
Can you believe that? And 20%, one-fifth of those evangelicals strongly agree with that statement. It's just like, what do you say to that? And again, when we go back to that old podcast, episode 49, this is on pastors for, for in large part. Because a lot of these evangelicals, I'm assuming that most of them are well-meaning, but they're sitting there in these churches and they're basically being fed nonsense. They're being fed TED Talks with a few Bible verses sprinkled over it, and they're being taught about Tinkerbell boyfriend Jesus, and, and they're not getting any sense of what is true. And you can see this a lot with millennials, which I is one, right? I'm, I'm 32 years old, so I'm considered on the older scale of millennials. But a reason for the shift in some of these percentages is because of what millennials think. Because they've grown up in this pluralistic society where everything has been relative, right? And as of right now, we don't exactly know what Gen Z is going to be like. There are some ideas and some, you know, forecasts that they're going to actually be more liberal than millennials. Or they're, and then there's some that say they're going to be more conservative than millennials. We basically don't have any idea what Gen Z is going to be like. But the guys out there that listen to me right now that you have kids that are, you know, in elementary school. We don't even have a generational category for those people yet. What are they going to believe? Because a lot of those kids are being raised by these dopes that think that there's no such thing as objective morality or objective truth even. So that's something that we should really be concerned about, guys. But now let's move on a little bit here because there are some major objections that people voice to a God-given objective morality right? This is why they run to moral relativity because it's something that's just, you know, more, you know, comfortable for them. It's a little bit easier for them to get on the other side of. So here are five of the biggest objections to a God-given objective morality. So here's the first one is what about atrocities made in the name of God? That's a big one. So God, you know, the person that gave us this objective morality, what about the people that do these horrible things in his name? The thing about it is though, guys, is just because it was made in the name of God does not mean that it was a directive of that God or worldview. This is so simple, but this absolutely trips up so many people. So if I say that I'm going to murder my neighbor in the name of Jesus Christ, that doesn't, you shouldn't look at that as, oh, that's what Jesus told him to do, right? And even look at this example. I know we talk about, you know, fundamentalist Islam a lot in here, but what about when a Muslim murders somebody but it's not because of apostasy or because that they won't accept, you know, they won't become a Muslim. That's just considered murder, even to, even to Muslims. If, if they kill somebody and it's outside of what's described in the ninth surah, it just is what it is. It's murder. So just because you say you're doing it in the name of God does not mean that that is prescriptive, that that is what people would have done. People talk about slavery and they're like, weren't there Christians that were saying slavery was okay? Yeah, because they were exegeting the scriptures improperly. And some of them because they were ignorant and some of them because they were evil, right? So that takes care of one objection. The second objection is something along the lines of this. Are you saying that you can't be moral unless you believe in God? And the easy answer to that is absolutely not. I mean, duh. Of course you can be moral and not believe in God. There, there are plenty of moral atheists out there. But the thing that you have to understand and the thing that you have to ask, it does beg this question, is where do these non-theists get their reference point for right and wrong or good and evil. Where does it come from? Because we know there's not really good answer. They don't have one, right? They're just going to kind of pretend that this isn't something that they need to wrestle with. So the third objection that I want to bring to you is that 
you can have objective morality without God. It's called moral realism. So moral realism is just basically, um, it's, it's basically having objective morality without God. So it kind of goes back to some of the things that we talked about earlier. But I thought that William Lane Craig, so he's a, obviously a famous apologist and author, he had a very, very good response to this when somebody was asking him about this. And it was basically reasons why theism is a better explanation than objective morality. That, uh, you know, that it just comes from us via moral realism, that it doesn't just come through the ether, but it was given to us, right? So this is what he said, and it was, quote, one, the nature of moral obligation, of moral duty, that we ought to do certain things, that we ought not to do other things, implies a divine command, because otherwise you may have that certain things are good and evil, but you don't have this oughtness. Second, it would be a coincidence of extraordinary improbability and unbelievability to think that if there are these objective moral principles that kind of exist, as you say, that it would be just the kind of beings to whom those principles apply that would have happened to evolved by chance in this universe. It would have been as if this moral realm knew that we were coming, so to speak. And that to me calls for a designer, an author of both the moral and physical realm. So that takes care of the third one. The fourth objection that we get is you say that we get objective morality from God. So why does this God allow evil and suffering to exist? Obviously, this is a huge philosophical question that writers and thinkers have been thinking about and positing for a very, very long time. And the best response that I've ever heard to this is something that Rabbi Zacharias says almost all the time. And I didn't really tell you who he was earlier. I just assumed you knew who he was. So Rabbi Zacharias is from Rabbi Zacharias International Ministries. And so he is a world-renowned apologist and goes around and does Q&As and speeches literally all over the place in all these different countries, even whenever he has to be basically escorted in and out with armed guards. But this was his response to this, you know, question of how could a good God or a creator God allow evil and suffering to exist? So here he is, quote, it's very critical to understand the nature of the question, because when we say there's evil, we assume there's good. When we say there's good, we assume there's a moral law on the base of which to differentiate between good and evil. When we assume a moral law, we assume a moral law giver, because without the moral law giver, there is no moral law. Without the moral law, there is no good. Without good, there is no evil. The question actually ends up hoisting itself up on its own petard. It doesn't know how to defend itself. But here's the killer point of that argument, which leads us to the fifth objection that we get, which is why do we need a moral law giver to have a moral law? Rabbi continues. And the answer is very clear in this. Every question raised about evil and suffering is either raised by a person or about a person which means that personal worth is essential to the question. Intrinsic worth is essential to the question, and in a naturalistic framework, you cannot have intrinsic worth. You've got extrinsic worth. It's conveyed to you. You are just a blip on the radar screen of time. You just happen to be here. But if you are a person created in the image of God with intrinsic worth, then the question indeed is reflective of the value that you give to personhood. So, Two things. The reality of good and the intrinsic worth of a person are essential to the question. For the question to be taken seriously, those assumptions need to be made, which the Christian makes. Unquote. So, those are a lot of objections that you guys might get to this worldview in terms of why would there be some sort of objective morality, where those are five really kind of cogent ways to deal with that. 
So as we wrap up this ID here, there's there's a couple of things that I think uh, we should do in terms of being prescriptive. Because you know, guys, we like to be descriptive here and kind of give you guys an idea, but we'd like to be prescriptive as well. So as thinking Christians, how should we respond to moral relativism? So we've got two things that we need you to do. The first is we must call it what it is, and that's cowardice. And, you know, I got this idea from Jordan Peterson. This was uh, actually a quote from one of his um, from one of his lectures whenever before he was Jordan Peterson, the author and the world renowned thinker, just when he was Jordan Peterson, the college professor. And it was this. This was his quote, quote, I'm not a fan of moral relativism for a variety of reasons, partly because I think it's an extreme form of cowardice, unquote. But that's exactly what this is. Most of the people that put this out there. They're not doing this because they're evil. There are certainly some that are putting this this point of view out there because they are evil. But this is just someone that just doesn't want to make a call, right? That they'd like to be able to sit on two sides of a fence, no matter what you know what plot of land the fence is sitting on, or what's on either side of the fence. They they just rather straddle the fence. They don't really want to judge anybody. They don't really want to say that this way of living is better than that way of living. But what's interesting about that is they will certainly look on other cultures and even past cultures and think to themselves, well, you know, we're better than they are, or I'm certainly more advanced than that group of people, right? But we have to call this out. When someone has this worldview, they're being a coward. They're they're not wanting to put their flag in the ground and, and make a stance about anything. So that's not appropriate. And the second thing that we as thinking Christians should do in terms of a response to moral relativism is this. We must call it what it is, untenable. Guys, this is a worldview that is completely and utterly flawed. And for us to pretend that it's not or to placate people that have this point of view, that is not really a good way to operate. And we got to bring Ravi Zacharias back in here because he has a great, great conclusion for us. And it was this, quote, truth cannot be all relative. To make a statement, all truth is relative, is a self-defeating statement. It either includes itself or excludes itself. If it includes itself, it means that statement is not always true. But if it excludes itself, then it's positing an absolute while denying that absolutes actually exist. So this is something that's incredibly important for us to look about or to look at when it comes to this is if someone that you know has this point of view, you've got to be able to sit down and talk to them about this. Just ask them questions. Don't come at them and just fire off all these philosophical statements at them because it's not really going to be well received. But we've got to really understand where they came to this point of view. Because there's plenty of people out there that are well-meaning and good people that don't really have a good idea why they believe what they believe. There's plenty of good, smart people that think the earth is flat, that think it's okay to zig when you should zag or whatever the thing might be, right? But it's not a tenable position and they're being cowards by having this position. So let's go ahead and go back to the initial question that we started off the podcast with, which is this, how do we know that murder is wrong? And the answer is pretty simple, guys. There is an objective moral law and God gave it to us. All right, guys, before we let you out of here, we're going to do a quick resilience boost. As you know, by now, we are a men's ministry and our mission is cultivating manly resilience. And specifically, we do that by providing you guys content like this podcast that helps you forge spiritual, mental, and physical toughness. So today we're going to work on mental toughness. And just to go ahead and let you know, I'm going to put a whole bunch of YouTube links and I'm not exactly sure what all I'm going to put on there quite yet. Uh, It might just be however I can get under the character limit whenever I go ahead and upload this online. 
But I'm going to go ahead and bring you a bunch of videos, probably some conglomeration of Ben Shapiro, uh, you know, Matt Walsh, Jordan Peterson, Ravi Zacharias, William Lane Craig, just a lot of different things that I want to put out there to you. But all these video clips are going to be very, very short, but it's going to give you an idea of kind of where we got our thought process here and, and how we brought it to you in that way. So I think that'll be good for you. All right, guys, thanks a lot for listening to the podcast. As always, please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Google Play and refer your friends to listen and share this on social media. If you use the hashtag UndauntedLife, we will be sure to find your post and give it a thumbs up. Guys, if we deserve a five-star review, that is how this podcast will continue to grow. The algorithms love five-star reviews, but leave us a five-star review in a few sentences so we can continue growing, all right? I'm currently booking speaking engagements for the entirety of 2019, so if you want me to come speak to your men's group, come speak on your podcast or to your men's event, whatever you want to do, hit me up, info at undaunted.life. Again, the email info at undaunted.life. Our website is www.undaunted.life. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at undauntedlife or facebook.com backslash undauntedlife. Check out our free devotionals on the Uvirgin Bible app. Just search Undaunted Life under plans. And we would like to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their entire music library for our content. The intro outro track on this podcast is their song King of Sorrow, which is off their latest record entitled Phantom Anthem. The links to all of this are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep cultivating manly resilience, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical toughness, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. Judah.